Our scripture reading this evening is taken from Romans 5. Romans chapter 5. We read this chapter in connection with our treatment of Lord's Day 3. We hear the inspired, infallible Word of God. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift of grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses, unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men, unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ, our Lord. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts.
We turn to the back of our Psalters to page 4 to Lord's Day 3. We have question and answer 6, 7, and 8. Did God then create man so wicked and perverse? By no means. But God created man good and after his own image in true righteousness and holiness that he might rightly know God his creator, heartily love him and live with him in eternal happiness to glorify and praise him. Whence then proceeds this depravity of human nature from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise? Hence our nature has become so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. Are we then so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness? Indeed we are, except we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord's Day 2 revealed that we are all prone by nature to hate God and our neighbor. The only conclusion that we can come to is that we are a broken people within a broken world. Lord's Day 3 now focuses on the nature of that depravity and the fact that that depravity and that brokenness did not originate with our original creation. It's due to the fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve. Now this is not a popular doctrine. Popularity would demand that we ignore the next Lord's Days. The desire of man is to focus on positive things. And especially those things that would esteem man. But we need to hear this teaching. We're in the section of the Heidelberg Catechism that emphasizes our need to know our misery. And it's only in the way of understanding and knowing our misery that we will be able to grasp the wonder of our deliverance and be able to live out of thankfulness for it. To stumble and to reject this doctrine of total depravity is to reject Christ. The heart of Reformed theology is that God is everything and man is nothing of himself. Those teachings are necessary for us to see the high, important place that Christ occupies in our salvation and for us to know our only comfort in life and in death. Now, the reason for the Catechism bringing up this issue of our depravity and connecting it with Adam and Eve is not to conduct purely a historical investigation into the origin of our sin. Such an investigation would suit us well as we would make it completely intellectual and we would keep ourselves then out of the picture This is something that we can talk about that pertains perhaps to man in general. But notice how the catechism makes it personal, connects it to you and to me. The catechism's intent is to bring out this historical survey in order to demonstrate your and my intimate connection to Adam. 
And evidence of that in the Lord's day is to identify Adam and Eve as your and my parents. They are our parents. We can't try to distinguish ourselves from them. We can't try to separate ourselves from them. They're our family. And the result then is that their sins had consequences for us. God made us good. But Adam and Eve fell into sin. And by virtue of their fall, they then passed on to the whole human race that depravity and corruption. We are depraved, totally depraved by nature. We can't even think, we can't even desire our salvation of ourselves. We can't do anything to add to our salvation. We are not able to do anything that would be pleasing in God's eyes. Dead in sin and trespasses. Now that truth of hereditary depravity, that it's a depravity that is hereditary, that is passed down from parents to children, has been assaulted more than any other truth of the Bible. And we can understand this assault. If it can be proven that man is not totally depraved, or that his depravity is God's fault, as the next Lord's Day is going to try to identify, then man is released from his misery. He doesn't need a Savior. He doesn't need Christ. And he's not so bad after all. He's not totally dependent then upon God and upon God's grace. But we see this evening there is no escape from this horrible reality of depravity. And we look at the origin then of our corruption, noting created good, fallen in Adam, and note that it's an inherited depravity. God created man good, and after his own image in righteousness and true holiness, the catechism says. The question that we face this evening is not, was whether or not God made us the way that we are born by nature. Did God make us inclined to all sin as we are when we are born? Did God make man unable to do anything pleasing to God apart from God intervening by a wonder of grace? That's the question. And the answer is found, God did not make man that way. That is not how God created man. God created man different from the animals by forming man out of the dust of the ground, breathing into his nostrils the breath of life, and then enabling man to love God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. God made man good. God made man an earthly creature. The whole life of this earth is tied in with our nature as we are earthly and we're adapted to the things here below. But yet God showed by virtue of our creation that there was also an important aspect of our being that involved a special relationship between man and God. And so God created man after his image. Though a creature of this earth, though earthly, though formed out of the dust, God gave man a unique and marvelous distinction. Apart from the animals, man was a spiritual being. And as a spiritual being then, able to bear the image of God by virtue of the fact that God gave him all that he needed. God gave him a mind. God gave him a body, a soul. And God 
made man after his own likeness and after his own image. To look like God. Now, you children know, we can't make a picture of God. God is a spirit. And we can't make a picture of a spirit. A spirit is invisible. A spirit doesn't have any kind of earthly characteristics concerning which we could draw a picture or make some kind of a diagram of. Our likeness of God can't be anything physical. It can't be the fact that we look like God because of the color of our hair or because we have eyes and God has eyes. God is a spirit. And so that likeness has to be spiritual. And that's the fundamental question that we ask ourselves. How did Adam and Eve look like God? What was their resemblance of God? The most simple understanding of an image is that that one looks like someone else. So in what way did Adam and Eve look like their creator? This is crucial for us to understand. A wrong answer puts one outside of the revelation of God and outside of the creeds and confessions that the Reformed Church has embraced through the ages. In what way was Adam like God? And what does it mean that Adam was after God's own image? That's the question that we need to answer this evening. So we ask, first of all, what does it mean to be an image bearer? And what belongs to that image? There are many different answers that are given. There are some who would say, well, to belong to the image and to be an image bearer means that man is naturally good. And according to that goodness that man has, he looks then like God. He resembles God's goodness. But then they would say, but God even adds something to the likeness of man in that God gives man the opportunity to pursue God in even a higher level so that without the image of God, he's still good, but with the image, he even is closer to God in some way and able to enjoy fellowship with the living God. They would say then that the image of God involves one's mind, one's will, one's heart, as well as one's spiritual makeup. And that all men then, all women are image bearers by virtue of the fact that they're men and they're women. They have minds, they have bodies, they have souls. Others teach that man is more identified with God more closely. So that God created man good. And God actually created man as a kind of a God where God was actually dwelling in man. And that becomes the idea of New Age theology and the idea of pantheism, that man becomes one with God. And as man lives in the midst of this world, then that unity with God is evident. And in that way, God touches man as to his being, and man, in a creaturely way, becomes God-like. Because there's no distinction, ultimately, between God and man. To do so is to deny God's transcendence, God's greatness, God's uniqueness. And tragically, again, even in Reformed circles, we hear of Christians teaching that we are Christ, that Christ is us, denying that distinction. Reformed churches in general teach a wider or a narrower sense of the image of God. In the wider sense, they would say the image of God has to do with man's mind and man's ability and man's being, whereas in a narrower sense, it has to do with the spiritual qualifications. 
And they would insist then that though man lost the image in the narrower sense, he still retains the image in the broader sense. All of these errors have in common that natural man still looks like God. He still resembles that that likeness of God. And so the question we have to ask is, what is that image? And what actually happened at the time of the fall? Studying the Bible and investigating the confessions, clearly we find that the image of God is limited to that which is spiritual. How is it that we look like God? We resemble God according to true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And that's what God created in Adam. So that when God made Adam, God made Adam holy, righteous, and endowed him with the true knowledge of his Creator. Now note for a moment with me how the confessions make this emphasis. In the third and fourth head of doctrine, Article 1 of the Canons of Dort, man was originally formed after the image of God. His understanding was adorned. Notice now here's the definition of what that means. He was formed after the image of God. His understanding was adorned with a true, saving knowledge of his Creator and of spiritual things. His heart and will were upright, all his affections pure, and the whole man was holy. What does it mean to look like God? It means that spiritually, man resembled God then in terms of his understanding, his righteousness, and his holiness. We find similarly in Belgic Confession, Article 14, that truth laid out. We believe that God created man out of the dust of the earth and made and formed him after his own image and likeness. And what is that? Good, righteous, holy, capable in all things to will agreeably to the will of God. Here in the Heidelberg Catechism, similarly, God created man good and after his own image. And then what does it say? In true righteousness and holiness, that he might rightly know God, his creator, heartily love him and live with him in eternal happiness to glorify and praise him. In other words, the likeness that man had to God had nothing to do with the fact that he had a brain, that he had a mind, that he was man. It had to do with the fact that spiritually he had holiness, he had righteousness, and he had true knowledge that God had placed within him. And the Bible teaches this in especially two passages in the Scriptures, in Colossians 3, verse 10, and Ephesians 4, verse 25. In Ephesians 4, verses 24 and 25, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. In Colossians chapter 3, so holiness and righteousness are identified there. In Colossians 3, verse 10, and put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Renewed in knowledge after the image. So that the picture that the apostle there paints in Ephesians and Colossians is this. Man lost the image of God. But now in Christ, that image is restored. And what is it that constitutes that image? Righteousness, holiness, and knowledge. In Christ, those spiritual characteristics are now restored in man. 
And so, speaking then of the renewal of the image, they do so in connection with those spiritual gifts. The implication then is this. The image of God is lost in man after the fall. God created man good, man foul. At the moment of the fall, he now lost that image of God. And the only possibility of it being restored is according to that restoring of the new man. That work of regeneration by which Jesus Christ restores to man those spiritual gifts. And the Catechism reflects that when it says, Indeed we are, that is, we are wholly incapable of doing any good, inclined to all wickedness, except we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Regeneration is the wonder by which God restores man again into that fellowship and that communion with God. An image then, in terms of reflecting God, is not in any way tied to anything physical. We are not image bearers physically in any way of God, but spiritually. And Scripture emphasizes that image is renewed in Jesus Christ alone. There's no possibility for man to restore himself. No possibility outside of Christ for that wonder to take place. The fact that Jesus Christ alone restores that image requires that we understand it as spiritual in its essence. And so that image then consists of true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. It's restored by the wonder of justification. The gift of righteousness, verse 17 talks about, shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. That God is the one who restores it in Christ. Now looking at the three different aspects, knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. What is knowledge? The knowledge that's spoken of here is to know God, even as God is God. To know God in the revelation that God has given us in his word. Adam's mind was in tune with God. Adam knew God as the creator of heaven and earth. He knew God as the one that he was called to serve. As he named the animals, he did so with the knowledge that God had given him so that he was able to see within all of the animals the unique place they occupied within the creation. And he understood that wonder, and he was able to reflect it then in the names that were given the animals, names that we don't have any longer, names that have been lost. Adam's mind was in tune with God. And that was a knowledge then of intense love. He loved God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. He was God's friend, and he knew God in that intimate sense. He was also holy. Holiness is always to be consecrated to God with one's whole being and completely separated from sin. Adam was wholly consecrated to the living God. There was a purity of heart that characterized Adam and Eve, devoted to God entirely, living to do the will of God, Loving God with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength. He wasn't indifferent to the things of God. He didn't view God and God's will as something that was carefree, something that he didn't have to follow. He loved it. And God was the whole focus of his life. There was nothing else that mattered. He lived for God and for his glory. Dedicated to, consecrated to God, and completely separate then from sin. And finally, he was righteous. All of his actions reflected 
the fact that he was right with God. That which he desired, that which he pursued, was that which was right with the will of the living God. He knew no guilt. He knew no condemnation. His life was characterized by love and harmony with God, with all of his mind, soul, strength, and will. There is no righteousness without knowledge. He was upright before God, living in love toward God. Adam enjoyed what we will enjoy someday in heaven. The perfection of that image within him. Now what Adam had on earth was yet lacking. Adam was able to fall into sin. God restores that image in his children in such a way that he brings us to glory where we will never be able to fall out of that glory and out of that wonder. But that image gave Adam and Eve the ability to serve God perfectly, to love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And they did that. And that's how they looked like God. When one saw Adam, one saw in him a reflection of the Creator. As Adam walked and lived in perfect holiness and righteousness and love. Now if Adam sinned, he would lose that image. That image would be turned into its opposite. And now he would become an image bearer of the devil. And that's precisely what occurred. He lost the image. That is, Adam still retained his humanness, but now he's no longer holy. He's no longer righteous. He no longer lives in true knowledge of God. Now, Adam lived in a covenant relationship with God. Question 6 states, Did God then create man so wicked and perverse? And in answer to that, that he might rightly know God as creator, heartily love him, and live with him in eternal happiness to glorify and praise him. Adam communicated with God. He, drew, he knew fellowship with God. He was privileged to be conformed to God's will. And he stood as the friend and the co-worker of the living God. Now, as God's covenant friend, he was not co-equal. God was still God. Adam was still a creature. But Adam lived as a servant of the living God. He had work to do. God told him to do the work. Adam listened. He obeyed. He was busy in the work that God gave him. And he was privileged to be involved in that work in love toward God and in perfect conformity with God's will. As we look at and as we read of what transpired in the garden, the little that we have revelation of, Adam is walking with God. Adam is talking with God. Adam is enjoying that intimate relationship with the living God. And the service of God is Adam's delight. He enjoyed that communion, that fellowship with God. He longed to show forth thankful obedience to his creator. That covenant fellowship that Adam knew was not a means to an end. It was the end itself. This was the joy. This was the wonder of that life that he had with Almighty God. But again, that was, it wasn't complete. God desired to take that covenant relationship and bring it to even a higher level. Through Jesus Christ. God created man earthly and good. But that wasn't God's final purpose. If man had not sinned, he might have lived forever in the garden an earthly life. But not a heavenly life. God had a higher purpose, a higher goal 
for his children and for his church. God would take man whom he had created of the earth and he would raise him to that which was heavenly. And so from the very beginning of time, God's purpose and plan was to bring his people into the fullness of that covenant life in Jesus Christ. And that comes out again and again throughout Romans 5, which we read. It contrasts repeatedly the first Adam with the second Adam. The first Adam who sinned with the second Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ, who was sinless and who was faithful. And so we look at the fall for a moment. And we know the history of it. Adam and Eve were placed in the garden. God gave them in that garden many, many trees. But God singled out two in the middle of the garden. The tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And God said to Adam and Eve, you can eat of all the trees, but don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We know, according to Genesis 3, the temptation that immediately confronted Adam and Eve. And while we don't know how long of a period of time it was between their creation and the fall, they began to look at that tree began to desire the fruit of it. And we read that it began with Eve. Eve looked upon the tree. She looked at the fruit and she saw that it was good. And then all of that prompted, how? By the devil. Now, the fall of the devil within the angelic world is not developed at length in the catechism here because it's not relevant for us and. All of the history of that is not necessary for us to know. Even one struggles to find in the Bible any kind of detailed demonstration of how it was that the devil fell and what really happened in the beginning there among the angelic realm that God had created. We would, on the basis of Scripture, conclude that God created the angels on the first day of the creation week. At some point, After God created the angels with Lucifer or Satan as the head of the angels, he decided that he wanted to take the creation as his own. And so he rebelled against God. And he took with him a number of angels who then became demons or devils. The Bible reveals that, that Satan, one of the heavenly creatures, the head of the angelic realm, conceived a plan that he would rule instead of and in the place of the living God. And so he rebelled against God. And he gained a following and he led that rebellion against God in the angelic realm. But his plan failed. He was exposed as the prince of darkness. So that already when Adam and Eve were in the garden, there was an enemy of God who was present in the midst of God's good creation. And that enemy was the devil, Satan. He came to Adam and Eve in order to tempt them. When his plan failed, his desire then was at least to get the creation. If he could bring the creation into his fold, then at least he could be Lord of the earthly creation. And so that enmity is expressed in Genesis 3. When the devil comes to Eve now, underhanded, he doesn't go to Adam, who is the one whom God had given the instruction to, he goes to Eve. And he says to Eve, look, look at the fruit of that tree. 
The tree of the knowledge of good and evil doesn't look good. And tempts her then to doubt God, to question God, and to take that fruit and to eat it. Immediately upon Eve eating the fruit and then passing it on to Adam and him eating, Adam and Eve died spiritually. They immediately lost that image of God, not only, but now it was transferred into the opposite. They became friends of the devil, and they became now those who were image bearers of the devil. Instead of being holy and righteous and having true knowledge, they now were ungodly, unrighteous, unholy, and they now lost that true knowledge of God. Verse 12 talks about that here. Whereas by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. The emphasis specifically is on Adam. He was the head of the human race. Adam's sin now resulted in death. And death not just for Adam, a death for the whole human race. Verse 14, Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. God immediately separated them from the tree of life. He cast them out of the garden, and death now entered into the creation, so that now, for the first time, there's death. Death now affects the creation, it affects the animals, it affects Adam and Eve. They begin to age. Now, spiritually they died in this sense. They are now the objects of God's wrath. Verse 18, Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. They now were judged by God as those worthy of condemnation. They sinned, and they were now worthy of death. They owed God perfect obedience or they would perish everlastingly in hell. God cannot ignore sin. God had said, the soul that sins, that soul shall die, and that soul would be punished. And Adam and Eve now lost the image, they lost the likeness of God, and now they became those who were friends of the devil. As such, the image then is turned into the opposite. They still are image bearers, They still retain their humanity. They still have body, soul, mind, spirits. They still retain their rational abilities. They still retain their humanity, but they're now image bearers of the devil. They now look like the devil instead of God. Now, the sin was serious on two accounts especially, and that's what is emphasized throughout the account not only, but also here. First, Adam chose man. He chose the devil's word as more desirable than God's. Here was a man whom God had created as his servant to serve God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And now Adam decides he's going to turn away from the sovereign God and he turns toward himself, his own selfish desires, and ultimately toward the devil. That's no little sin. Who is Jehovah? Jehovah is the creator of heaven and earth. And he was rebelling against now the sovereign creator of heaven. Whenever you and I sin, that's the nature of our sin. Our sin is a rebellion against the sovereign God of heaven and earth. 
Sometimes we think our sin is minor. It's a minor offense. Sometimes even men and women have been inclined to mock this sin and say, but all they did, they just took a bite out of a piece of fruit. How can that be so serious? Every sin is an attack on the Word of God and the will of God and the sovereignty of God. And that sin makes that one now worthy of death before God. Romans 5, secondly, expresses the seriousness of that sin as it was a sin by which Adam stood in a position of representative head. And so Adam's sin didn't just affect himself, it affected the whole human race. And that's the emphasis here, especially in this chapter. Because of Adam's fall, the whole human race is guilty and worthy of corruption. Adam's sin is passed on to the whole human race because of the position that he held as the representative head of the human race. Organically, we would say, all humans come from Adam and Eve. And so therefore, they're all corrupted. They're all polluted because a corrupt parent is going to bring forth a corrupt offspring. God created the whole human race in Adam organically. And that concept of the organic connection between Adam and the human race is very important for us to understand. Adam was, so to to speak, the seed. He was the kernel of the whole human race. You and I were in Adam. Every member of the human race traces his or her origin to Adam. If you look at an embryo and you see pictures of it, you can't imagine how it could turn into a man. And yet, everything that's necessary to turn into a man is present already in that embryo. All the genetics, everything that's required. The whole human nature and the whole human race was present already in that embryo form in Adam. And now, because of Adam's sin, the whole thing becomes corrupt. All who follow are conceived and born in sin according to Psalm 51, verse 5. The canons of Dort here in the third and fourth head, as we note in the insert in Articles 2 and 3, man after the fall begat children in his own likeness. A corrupt stock produced a corrupt offspring. Hence all the posterity of Adam, Christ only accepted, have derived corruption from their original parent. Not by imitation, as the Pelagians of old asserted, but by the propagation of, of a vicious nature. Article 3, Therefore all men are conceived in sin and by nature children of wrath, incapable of saving good, prone to evil, dead in sin, and in bondage thereto. And without the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit, they are neither able nor willing to return to God, to reform the depravity of their nature, or to dispose themselves to reformation. It would be easy to understand how all men are dead in sin and misery if all committed the same sin of Adam. If we all lived in the garden, we all willfully did the exact same thing. But it's harder for us to understand, how am I guilty for something I did not do? How am I guilty for something that Adam did? Even more difficult to say, how is a baby that's just born, guilty and corrupt 
because of something that Adam and Eve did thousands of years ago. In our, people, in our day, people won't even admit guilt and punishment for things they do, much less to acknowledge guilt now for something that I personally did not do. Beloved, the reality in the teaching of Scripture is you and I are guilty for something that Adam and Eve did. And the whole Bible declares that of you and of me. This is not the teaching of men. This is the teaching of God's Word. That God created Adam as the head of the human race. He was not only living in a relationship with God, he was also living in a relationship with mankind. And that repeatedly is established here in Romans 5. He sinned then as our legal head. Organically, the corruption comes to the whole human race. Legally, the guilt passes on to the whole human race. Adam's sin brought about separation from God. Separation from fellowship. And now instead of holy and righteous, unrighteousness, unholiness. And note that emphasis that comes out, especially in verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. The emphasis of that latter statement is not that all are going to sin, but the fact that everyone sinned in Adam. When Adam sinned, the whole human race now is guilty of sin. And then later on expressing in verse 14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. Even though I didn't sin that same sin of Adam, I'm still guilty of it. I still sinned in Adam. And the imputation of the fall is due now to my organic and legal connection to Adam. Because of that, the whole human race now is guilty of original pollution and original guilt. The only one that escapes is Jesus by virtue of a wonder of wonders. The fact that he's born of a virgin and that his person is the second person of the Son of God. But that legal connection and that organic connection establishes guilt and death to the whole human race. Now, not all of the sins of Adam are imputed to the human race, but that original sin. Our inclination would be to say that's not fair and to object to this teaching. But we may not and we cannot object all of our objecting is not going to change the grim, hard reality of the hopelessness of our inherited corruption and guilt. But even more, to object would be the height of pride and the height of sinful rebellion against the living God. God is God. This is the way God established and set Adam in his place. This is the way that God placed us in connection with Adam. And God can do as he pleases. He determined that Adam would be our head, and therefore Adam is our head. Beloved, there's only one response. As we come to terms with who we are in connection with Adam and the effect of Adam's sin on us, we bow to the dirt and we cry out, I am a sinner and I am sinful. I'm not just a sinner. I'm sinful. My nature is corrupt. 
I'm a sinner that can never escape the bondage of that depravity. I can do nothing to escape it by myself, by anything I do. All that I'm going to do is dig deeper and deeper and deeper the pit of my own guilt before God. I'm a sinner, dead in trespasses and in sin. And so will I accuse God of injustice? Will I stand before the living God and say, God, it's not fair that I am what I am. It's not fair that these little babies are born and they have that inherited depravity of Adam. The Bible says, who are you, O man, to challenge the Almighty God in Romans 9? God is God. He's a God of love, but also a God of justice. And His justice and mercy come together at the cross. Romans 5 makes clear that sin and death were inflicted on all the offspring of Adam before they even had opportunity themselves to sin. And so we then have an inherited depravity. We're totally depraved according to our natures. Again, a difficult doctrine that requires of us the work of God's grace and spirit to humble us. It's hard enough to embrace the fact that we're guilty of Adam's sin, but more the fact that because of his sin, we are polluted, we are corrupted, and there is no possibility of our doing any good of ourselves. Our response would be, it can't be that bad, can it? Sure, I'm guilty then, but wholly polluted, incapable of doing any good? The catechism says, yes, indeed, we are. Are we then so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness? Indeed, we are. That's the teaching of the Scripture as reflected in our confessions. There's only one way of escape, except we are regenerated. And beloved, that's where we're directed to the wonder of the gospel. That's where we're directed to our only comfort in life and in death. The only possibility of salvation is in Jesus Christ. How is it that man can be saved from this depravity? Only in Christ. One man caused all the rest to be polluted and corrupted with sin. And again, we can understand from an earthly perspective a bit of that. If one man divulges top information in an army... The whole army is going to be affected. It may be that hundreds of men, thousands of men are going to die because of that leak of information. The act of one has an impact upon many because of the position that that one occupies. We're tempted again to say, it's not my fault, it's not my fault, I'm not responsible. But Jehovah God ordained that place that Adam would occupy. And legally, all are guilty in Adam. And what he did as head... We do as members. We continue in it. So that, beloved, we can't deny the reality of sin and total depravity. And fundamentally, in the midst of all of our objections, we look at ourselves. And if you look at yourself and I look at myself, we know our nature. We know that our nature is fundamentally corrupt. We know that my nature is inclined to every sin. We know that I am tempted to commit every sin. I'm guilty of 
the grossest of sins because of what my eyes are attracted to, what my mind is inclined to think, what my hands and feet are directed to. We must acknowledge by God's grace, I am a sinner and my nature truly is sinful. And this is the judgment of God upon every man, woman, and child that's ever lived or ever will live. The entire nature is inclined to all evil. Guilt and pollution characterize it. We call that total depravity. And that's not too severe of a term. Total depravity. Genesis 6 verse 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There's only one family concerning which God could not make that judgment, and that was Noah. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Concerning Noah, God looked upon him as the object of his grace. God saw them in Christ as those who were regenerated, and that alone distinguished them. Though they were yet depraved, now they had a new identity, and that was the new life that God had given them in Jesus Christ. Total is the whole human race. There's no exception. Every single man, woman, and child that ever lived, with the exception only of Jesus, the total human race. And total refers to the entire being. Every part of my being. Every aspect of my being. So that we, using the language of Scripture, say that we are dead in trespasses and sin. Man is dead. A dead corpse is not able to do anything to raise itself. The only possibility of that dead corpse becoming alive is if something else acts upon it. And that's where we have in the history of Jesus' ministry as well as throughout the Bible, the repeated references to those who were raised from the dead. That's the wonder of wonders that characterizes salvation. God takes those who are dead and he gives them life. Those who are dead in sin, those who are totally depraved, those who are the objects of God's wrath, those in whom the image of God is gone, but yet they retain the ability yet to bear an image, but they have the image of the devil. God takes hold of them, and he restores in them that which they lost. And he does so, so marvelously, that they will never lose it again. That's the wonder of the gospel. So man did not lose that which made him a man. He still retains his manhood. He can still bear an image. We can still hold something. By nature, no longer the image of God, the image of the devil. By grace, the image of God, restored in Christ alone. Now, beloved, there's no middle ground here. We're either good or we're depraved. And the Bible makes clear, as a result of the fall, all mankind is depraved according to their nature. In that depravity, there's no remnant of grace. There's no remnant of the image of God. The Belgic Confession, again, makes that emphatic in Article 14. The fact that after the fall, we read of the perverseness. Being thus become wicked, perverse, and corrupt in all his ways, he hath lost all his excellent gifts, which he had received from God, and only retains a few remains thereof, which, however, are sufficient to leave man without excuse. That's the same way in which also the 
Canons of Dort state in Article 4 of the third and fourth head. There remain, however, in man since the fall, the glimmerings of natural light, whereby he retains some knowledge of God, of natural things, and of the differences between good and evil, and discovers some regard for virtue, good order in society, for maintaining an orderly external deportment. But so far is this light of nature from being sufficient to bring him to a saving knowledge of God and a true conversion, that he is incapable of using it aright, even in things natural and civil. Nay, further, this light, such as it is, man in various ways renders wholly polluted, holds it in unrighteousness, by doing which he becomes inexcusable before God. Man has glimmerings. He has the ability yet to know right and wrong. He retains his humanness. But it doesn't help him spiritually. He's doomed. Now, does every human display his sinfulness to the full degree that he could? No. Belgic Confession in Article 13 talks about the fact that there is a restraint of sin. Not a restraint that's gracious for those individuals, but that's gracious for God's church and for God's saints. As God then, according to his grace, directs all things for the good of his church and for the salvation of his children. God directing the stream of sin and the stream of evil. And God using many different means. Sometimes it's the laws of the land. A person knows if I kill, then I'm going to die. Therefore, he's kept from pursuing it for purely selfish reasons. What's our only hope then, beloved? Except we be regenerated by the Spirit of God. Our heart and nature are wholly enslaved to the devil of ourselves. But Jehovah God, by a wonder of grace, gives us to know hope. Can we turn ourselves? Can we save ourselves? Jeremiah 13, verse 23 is instructive. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? You children understand that. Can an Ethiopian who has black skin change his skin color to white? Can a leopard decide, I want to be a zebra? And so instead of spots, I want stripes. No, a leopard can't change his skin. We can't change our skin. Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. That is, if that's true, then you who are evil can do good. But it's not true. And therefore, you who are evil cannot of yourselves do anything good. Now, in response, some try to soften this again. Some try to inject a grace that's common for all men. There's no place for any kind of a common grace that insists man can still do some good. Man is, after all, not dead. Throughout the history of mankind, there's the attempt to try to say, he's just really sick. Man is not really dead. Man is still a little bit alive, but all a denial of the clear teaching of Scripture. He is dead in trespasses and sins. And beloved, the result then is this. You and I need a miracle. We need a wonder to be rescued from that desperate condition. We need Christ as the second Adam. And that's what Romans 5 beautifully sets forth. Over against Adam, we have the Christ, the one who would not fail, the one who accomplished the wonder of salvation, the one who by grace has given to us that life that's from above. This is our comfort our only comfort in life and in death. Amen.
Our Father who art in heaven, we thank Thee for the knowledge of our own sinfulness and depravity. We thank Thee for the humility that Thou dost work by Thy Spirit, exposing that sin and that corruption in our natures. And we thank Thee for the grace by which Thou dost direct us to Christ alone. There is no way of escape of ourselves. There is no creature that can assist us. But we have in our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came in order to lay down his life in our place and to rescue us and to give us a life that is from above. May we be directed by faith to him alone as our only comfort. Amen.